cloud. All righty. So we resume after uh, somewhat of an unplanned uh, vacation, as far as uh, napping around and uh, the shir before uh, before Purim. Um, but here we are, ready to uh, to resume. What I'm figuring is is that between this week and next week, we will cover the seventh principle, and then the uh, Tuesday before Pesach. That will be the third week, so we will uh, will be off. And then we'll take off till uh, after Pesach, and then sometime after Pesach we will uh, we will resume uh, and get ourselves through the uh, the remainder of these uh, these principles. So I thought about doing this week and next week maybe uh, the Haggadah, but I decided I want to uh, uh, keep going with the uh, the principles. So we'll uh, this year that's uh, th- that's what we'll do. Who knows what will be uh, in years to come? Who knew what we would be now as far as uh, you know our, our circumstance? Okay, so. We are on the seventh principle. That's the one where we left off. So uh, if you remember, these, as we move from the fifth to the sixth principle, so we went ahead and we transitioned from principles related to God's existence into principles related to prophecy. So the sixth principle dealt primarily with the existence of prophecy, our belief in pr- prophecy. We spent some time discussing what exactly it takes to become a prophet and uh, and uh, what what uh, the uh, the preparations are involved in all of that? I assume you guys have been working on it, and you are already up to uh, to prophecy uh, status. So uh, so with that, uh, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to put the glass ceiling on you, which is here this seventh principle, which has to do with the uniqueness of Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy. So as far as um, uh, before we look at uh, some of the details involved in this uh, this principle in terms of Moshe Rabbeinu's uh, superior status as a prophet or his superior prophecy. So uh, it's important to put this principle back into context, especially since we're revisiting it after a few uh, after a few weeks. That in this principle, so we're actually taking the last principle of the existence of prophecy and now we're taking it to the next uh, to taking it to the next level, taking it a step further. Um, and we're going to go ahead and we're going to describe how Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy was qualitatively above and beyond the prophecy of any of the Nevi'im that preceded him, as well as any of the Nevi'im which will follow. So Moshe Rabbeinu, as far as prophecy is concerned, he is placed on a pedestal which sets him apart. He is using the 21st century terminology. He is the goat of all prophets, greatest of all time. So he is the one who is uh, that uh, that uh, that uh, the Torah assigns, and the Rambam confirms that he is the one who's going to have that uh, that status. Now it's interesting. Um, the Rambam spends of this of all the uh, of all the pro- the principles which we've had until now, and I think it's going to be true as we make our way through the remainder of the principles that the Rambam spends the most amount of time proving and discussing this principle. Of all the principles, this is the one which which uh, which he writes the most about. As we're going to see, he goes that and he enumerates four uh, distinctions, four character uh, characteristics of Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy, which was different fundamentally than all other uh, all other neviim. And he he has a paragraph or so on each one of those uh, those differences in terms of Moshe Rabbeinu's uh, Moshe Rabbeinu's unique status of. Uh, of prophecy. Now, what's uh, what's important to know is that the uh, 
the Rambam goes ahead and by enumerating these four principles, which we're going to get to, so one may assume that what was really going on over there is, is that uh, there, we reached a time in Jewish history where a prophet of the stature of Moshe Rabbeinu was necessary. It's, a, it's important because we're right around Pesach time. So Klai Yisrael is in slavery, is in Mitzrayim in slavery, and Klai Yisrael needs a leader who's going to, number one, take them out of Egypt, which is no small task. You have to go ahead and you have to take on Paro and you have to prove to the Jewish people that you are a worthy leader and you have to go ahead and you have to twist Paro's arm or you have to at least be the catalyst for God to twist the Paro's arm to go ahead and release the Jewish people from, uh, from slavery. And then that same leader is going to be the one who's going to go up because we did the, the exodus. Yitzhiya Mitzrayim was not an end in and of itself. Yitzhiya Mitzrayim was a hechitimza. It was a means to be able to march the Jewish people to Har Sinai so that they should be able to receive the Torah. That was the ultimate goal of Yitzhiya Mitzrayim is to go ahead and kirvanu uh, lifne Har Sinai, like we say in Dayenu. Agash Baruch is the one who brought us before, uh, before Har Sinai. So being that the time in the place necessitated a prophet of this unbelievable stature, one which was going to be able to literally go into the heavens, take the Torah from the heavens and download it here on earth, which was unheard of up until that, uh, that, that point. So therefore, HaKadosh Baruch Hu had to endow Moshe Rabbeinu with certain qualities in a certain level of prophecy, which doesn't need to be replicated ever again. So if that was the extent of the Rambam's uh, presentation over here, so then we would say that, listen, there was a time and a place, and it necessitated somebody with those unique characteristics, and Moshe Rabbeinu was the one who was divinely chosen to go ahead and play that role. We would say, yeah, it makes sense that you, you need a person of that stature, he's going to have to come in, and he's going to have to go ahead and do that. And we would say that um, uh, we would not, however, have gone ahead and attributed Moshe Rabbeinu's greatness as a prophet, as a Navi, to any achievement that Moshe Rabbeinu had done, any accomplishment of his own. He was endowed with certain characteristics. He was endowed with incredible potential, which never needs to be replicated again. And therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu's nevuah was head and shoulders above everybody else. And we would not have credited Moshe Rabbeinu, we would have considered him to be sort of an accident of time or a, a, a unique anomaly which occurred, but not something which was achieved through his efforts. But yet when you go ahead and if you were to look at the way the Rambam describes Moshe Rabbeinu as this unique Navi, and a Navi who is head and shoulders above everybody else. So you'll see that he goes ahead and he credits Moshe Rabbeinu with achieving character traits, like we talked about in the last principle, that the bittle of the Yeshus, that the, the complete nullification of his ego. So that's something which Moshe Rabbeinu went ahead and was able to do through his own efforts. That's not something which was endowed to him by God. He wasn't born uh, humble, but it's something which he, uh, which, which he worked on. And he also achieved a righteousness and a holiness, which also were the results of his own efforts not something which was given to him, not something which was gifted to him, that he was born a, uh, born a tzaddik. It's something which very much Moshe Rabbeinu earned, and the Rambam goes ahead and explains very clearly that that was the, uh, the case. 
And the Rambam goes ahead and says that Moshe Rabbeinu, through his efforts, he achieved the level which is comparable to angels. He was almost like a malach. He was as close as a human being could get to being on the level of a malach in the sense that he was completely divorced and cut off and not connected at all to anything which was physical. He happened to be a physical human being, but through his efforts, he was able to go ahead and achieve this high level where he was almost completely severed from his physical connections. So that's why the Torah can tell us that for 40 days and 40 nights, he's on Har Sinai, he doesn't eat or drink at all. So he can have this extended, it's one thing to do intermittent fasting, something like that. But it's a totally different level to go ahead and be able to pull that out for 40 days and 40 nights. And yet Moshe Rabbeinu was able to go ahead and, uh, and do that. And he says his mind was almost not like the mind of a human with all of the limitations which we normally assign to the human mind, but his mind, the mind of Moshe Rabbeinu, once again, through his efforts, was like that of a, a, a spiritual being. Once again, on the level of on the level of malachim, much beyond what what it is. So now, if that's the case, now this raises a question. So if Moshe Rabbeinu's unique stature and unique uh, achievement in terms of prophecy was actually the result of his efforts, if he put in the blood, sweat, and tears in order to develop his character, to fine tune his mind and his spiritual sensitivities and all of those things. And as a result of his efforts, so he achieved more than everybody else because he tried so much harder than everybody else. What that means theoretically though is that somebody else could put in more effort than Moshe Rabbeinu and could accomplish and achieve more than Moshe Rabbeinu. And they should be able to achieve at least a similar level of prophecy or perhaps even a greater level of prophecy than Moshe Rabbeinu. In other words, we have, we have, this, uh, we have this, uh, um, this inconsistency. Because on the one hand, we say that Moshe Rabbeinu achieved it all on his own. And that's why he achieved a higher level of Nebuah than anybody else. But if that's true, Theoretically, somebody could work harder, do more, and achieve a higher level of prophecy, which the Ramam says is not possible. If everything is really a, it was gifted to him, that his level of prophecy was something which was endowed to him by God, he was the chosen one from the, uh, from the very outset, then there's no reason for the Rambam to describe at all the efforts that Moshe Rabbeinu put in in order to achieve his prophecy, because they had nothing at all to do with his efforts. It was something which was gifted to him. He was the one who was chosen even before birth, that he was going to be the leader of the Jewish people. Whatever the astrologers of, uh, of Paro told him about the savior of the Jewish people being born, if that was known already from before he was even born, before he, before he came into this world, so then it has, there's no reason for the Rambam to describe Moshe Rabbeinu's efforts in achieving this, uh, this, uh, this level of prophecy. So the question is, which of these is actually true? Is Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy a function of his efforts, which then theoretically means somebody could go ahead and do the same thing? Or was Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy a gift which was given to him by God? And if so, it has nothing at all to do with his efforts. So um, the answer to this uh, gives us an insight, gives an opportunity to review a uh, you know what I think is one of the most important principles which, uh, which uh, people have to, uh, to keep in mind in terms of not only their spiritual growth, but in terms of their overall perspective of who and what, the, what, what they are.
in the role that we have in the uh, in, in this world. And uh, a proper understanding of this, not just understanding of this, I should, should say that better, uh, a proper internalization of this will alleviate us from all sorts of anxiety, all sorts of stress, and a, a feeling of inferiority, which often we schlep around with us as we go through our day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month lives in terms of what we are doing and what other people are doing. And as we go ahead and we compare and contrast ourselves with others, usually to our detriment. Usually when we start making that comparison with, uh, with others, it usually does not leave us with an uplifted feeling. It usually leaves us with a, I don't know if you would say downlifted would be the opposite of up, uplifted, but a, uh, a down, a down, down drop. A down, what? Down drop. A down drop, a down drop uh, feeling, which is, uh, which uh, I think is a, a pretty universal uh, thing. And that is, the principle is, is that um, God creates, which we know, God creates each of us to be unique. And God has given, has assigned each of us a specific role and a specific accomplishment and a specific task, that's probably the best word, a specific task, which we are supposed to accomplish in this world. And not only does he give each person a specific and unique and, uh, and special task, but he also gives each person all of the tools that they will need in order to be able to achieve that task. Baruch doesn't throw us into the ocean without a, without a boat and without an oar and expect us to go ahead and swim. Whatever situation he puts us in, he provides us as well. It's only fair that he provides us with the resources necessary in order to be able to accomplish that task. Now, it happens to be true that when we look at things superficially, so we will say that certain people are, let's say, leaders, and certain people are not leaders. And we think, mistakenly so, but we are led to believe that leaders somehow are better, and people who are non-leaders are not as good as the, as the leaders. And if we find ourselves in that non-leadership position, so that could be one of those nagging things which bothers us, that this person is accomplishing so much more, they're doing so much more, they're making a bit, bit bigger name for themselves. All the things that we say when we compare ourselves with people who superficially are accomplishing more than us, but that comparison is actually not true because it may very well be that the expectation of HaKadosh Baruch of that person is to play a leadership role. And the expectation he has for another person is a non-leadership role. And like the Gemara and Kedushin tells us uh, many times, and we've, we've it's, a, it's, it, it's, a, it's an important principle that the world needs all sorts of different people. And all of those people play a very important role. The world is not going to be able to function without people doing all sorts of different jobs and taking care of all sorts of different tasks. And it happens to be that some of those tasks and responsibilities are glamorous and get all sorts of accolades and all sorts of uh, 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 credit and esteem and recognition. And other people go ahead and they do things very quietly without any recognition and without any, uh, without earning uh, any esteem or anything like that. But they're getting the job done and they're doing what they need to do in their quiet, unassuming, uh, very humble manner. And from a superficial perspective, we think that the person who's getting credit and who's recognized is doing more. And the person who we don't recognize and we don't give credit to is doing less, but that's, a, that's, that's not the case. 
And it may very well be that the person who's getting all of the credit and all of the accolades are that, they may very well be falling way short of what their potential is. Just because a person is recognized and a person is appreciated for what they are doing, that doesn't mean that they're doing all that they need to do. It just means the amount, the, the amount that it is that they're doing, so they're getting credit for that. Um, let's say you have, as an example, you have a, uh, a bajillionaire, you know, whatever number, whatever number my kids go ahead and use for some astronomical figure of, a, of number. Uh, so you have somebody who's a, 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 a gazillionaire. So gazillionaire goes ahead and donates $10,000. Or let's say gazillionaire donates $25,000. So for $25,000, you could certainly get a plaque, right? In some instances, $25,000 will not only get you a plaque, you may even get some naming rights as far as where your name is going to go on that $25,000 donation. So for those of us in the room here, somebody donates $25,000, ooh, wow, that's incredible. That person is donating that much money. And we look at that as this, uh, this incredible, incredible thing that the person is accomplishing, uh, the, that the person is doing because they're giving $25,000, which gives them naming rights of the Aron Kodesh or something, uh, you know, something of, uh, of that sort. Usually an Aron Kodesh costs more than that. But let's just say $25,000 for the Aron Kodesh. But in the meantime, percentage-wise, it may very well be that all of us in this room are giving a higher percentage of our money to Tzedakah than the bazillionaire who's only giving $25,000. For him, $25,000, for the rest of us, is like giving a quarter. It's like writing a check for $25. It's, it, it's something, but it's not something which is going to uh, you know, certainly take food off of our table. It's not going to impact our lifestyle in any way, way shape, or form. But from that from that superficial perspective, the $25,000 donation gets all of the credit and the $25 donation gets no credit, gets no recognition whatsoever. Maybe you'll get a receipt for the fact, but there, there may very well be that the accountants will say, listen, you can write off the $25 anyways, you don't need a receipt and we don't have to put you into, a, into, into our program. But from the other perspective, the person who, who struggles and is able to give $25 at their own, at not their own detriment, but at their own uh, efforts, which requires real effort on their part, may get a huge reward, a much bigger reward than the person who gives $25,000, when for them, it's less than a drop in the bucket. So we have to train ourselves, we have to internalize this idea that not to measure ourselves based on comparison to others, but what we need to do is measure whether or not we're achieving our potential. That's the only valid measure that we can have to decide whether we are accomplishing, we're not accomplishing, we're doing the task which we were assigned to do or we were not. And it's, it, it's difficult to do so because it's much easier to compare ourselves with, uh, with others. It's very difficult to measure ourselves against ourselves and against our potential. But that really is the only true valid measurement which we could use in order to be able to, uh, to gauge our our growth and whether we are on track for, uh, for the task which we were assigned to do or whether we are not. Famously, the, uh, the Rebbe of Zusha, uh, he said, he told his Talmudim, he told his students that when he gets to Shemayim, so he's not concerned at all that in the based in in Shemayim, they'll say to Abzusha, Abzusha, why weren't you as holy as the Baal Shem Tov? Because he has an easy answer. Baal Shem Tov had certain characteristics. He was endowed with certain things that I, I, I never had that potential. So you can't expect that I'm going to be as holy as the Baal Shem Tov. And they're not going to ask me why I wasn't as big of a Tamil Chacham as Rebbe Kiv Eger. 
because Kivanger had a much bigger brain than me. And as a result of his much bigger brain, there's a much greater expectation from him than there is from me. What Rebzusha said that he is concerned about is he's going to get up to Shemayim, they're going to say, Rebzusha, why were you not Rebzusha? In other words, they will show him exactly what his potential was and what he could have accomplished. And that he's not going to have an answer for. There's no excuse to say, I wasn't uh, uh, the, 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 the ideal Reb Zusha, because that completely falls on his shoulders. Can't blame that anybody else. Can't say that you weren't given what you were supposed to do in order to be able to accomplish that. Because like we said, HaKadosh Baruch Hu always gives us exactly what we need in order to be able to fulfill our task here in this, in this world. And that is what, uh, that's the difference between a, let's say, a Moshe Rabbeinu, as well as other prophets. It's absolutely true that Moshe Rabbeinu was gifted potential, which will never be replicated again, because the time of his, of his lifetime in the task which he had was unique. We're never getting the Torah again. There's never going to be a Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim like that ever again. So Moshe Rabbeinu had to have certain characteristics. He had to have certain potential, let's say, which is above and beyond anything anybody else would, will ever have because he needed it. He needed that in order to be able to do all the things that he accomplished over the course of his 120 years. But all that he was endowed with, all that he was gifted with was great potential. With great potential also comes a great responsibility to actually fulfill that potential. Again, Moshe Rabbeinu could have stopped from our perspective, he could have stopped at 50% of his growth and said, listen, at 50% of my growth, I'm already head and shoulders above everybody else. So if I'm already head and shoulders above everybody else at 50%, I, I, if I compare myself to everybody else, I'm, I'm already the man. So why do I need to go ahead and continue to push myself? Why should I put forward effort in order to be able to, uh, to, uh, to do anything more when I've already got it? Because the truth is, is that uh, even if you've achieved 50% in your head and shoulders above almost everybody else anyways, it doesn't mean anything in terms of your potential. If your potential is another 50%, then being better than everybody else that you know doesn't, uh, doesn't mean very much. It, does, it doesn't account for very much as far as that is concerned. They say, I've heard um, 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 trust, I care who it is, um, at lower levels, of athletics, so natural ability will take you pretty far. Natural ability can make you into a good high school athlete, whatever your sport happens to be. Natural ability will get you through that. Natural ability may be able to get you to a certain degree through college level athletics, division one college athletics. So being a great athlete, being endowed with great athletic, uh, you know, natural skill, that will get you pretty far. But they all say that once you reach professional level, once you reach Olympic caliber or professional level, so at that point, everybody has those same gifts. And if you're going to rely on your natural abilities, then you're not going to be a gold medal winner. And if you rely on your natural abilities, you're not going to be the MVP. That's not going to earn you the MVP. It's well known that, again, my orientation is, is basketball. It's well known that Michael Jordan worked as hard, if not harder than anybody else in basketball despite all of his natural God-given uh, talents. And Kobe Bryant also, it's well known that he was first one in the gym in the morning. He was last one out at night. And he had a very, uh, a very um, um, 
uh, a very strong work ethic in terms of making sure to practice day in and day out and day in and day out, it was not going to rely on the fact that he had naturally uh, born uh, athletic gifts to him because that's not going to do much at that level. If he was going to achieve his potential, he knew that he had to work incredibly, incredibly hard in order to be able to, uh, to, uh, to do that. So Moshe Rabbeinu, in the area of Nevoah, so Moshe Rabbeinu certainly was endowed with a tremendous amount of potential, but in order to be able to maximize that, in order to be able to achieve his task in this world, he had to go ahead and he had to work incredibly hard in order to actualize all of that potential. So that's why simultaneously Moshe Rabbeinu was, was, in, was gifted with great potential, which nobody will ever have those gifts again. But at the same time, we could say that he also put in an incredible amount of effort in order to be able to fine tune all of those God-given gifts and talents which he had in order to be able to develop his potential to the absolute utmost in order to be able to achieve all of, uh, and accomplish all of those things which he ultimately, uh, ultimately did. So those are those two ways that the Rambam is sort of balancing between the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu, of what he uh, accomplished, as well as together with what he was gifted as a natural consequence of the fact that he needed to be the leader, that Klai Yisrael, the Baruch Hu needed him, Kivyachol, to be the leader who's going to take Klai Yisrael out of Mitzrayim, who's going to go up on Har Sinai and ultimately bring down the, uh, the Torah to, ma- to mankind. Um, last muscle in a, uh, in a large machine, uh, we don't really have large machines so much anymore because <laughs> everything now uh, shrinks, but in, in large machines, so you have all sorts of different, uh, different pieces. So the different pieces which we have, so you have uh, bolts and levers and all sorts of uh, um, uh, the, uh, the uh, nuts and bolts and beams and levers and springs and pulleys and all sorts of uh, different things of, of that sort. And some of those things may play a more, what appears to be a more dramatic role in the functioning of that machine. And some of those things may be quite minor but uh, you can be almost certain, right? It, it, it happens when you're, you get one of those do-it-yourself things. You go to Ikea and you have take apart, you know, all the parts are in front of you. You can be certain that if a part is there, unless it's a, it ends up being extra because they, they, they miscount and they put in too many, but anything which is there, is, it, it serves a function. When you take something apart and you put it back together, and you've got five screws left over, you say, eh, they probably weren't so important anyways. <laughs> that transistor really isn't so important to the functioning of this, uh, of this laptop. They probably won't even notice that, it, that it's missing. So something small like that, it may seem inconsequential, but the whole system could fall apart because that one piece, which seemingly is small and inconsequential, uh, doesn't work. You know, a small bolt, which holds a small nut, which holds a bolt in place, which the whole thing, you know, uh, falls apart as a result of that. So uh, it, it, it seems less dramatic, but obviously in the system, the system requires every one of those pieces to be functioning properly. And if not, so the whole thing is going to, uh, the whole thing falls, uh, falls apart. So that's what we have to uh, realize on a personal level, swing it back around to that. On a personal level, that yes, there are leaders and there are non-leaders, but being a leader doesn't mean that one is any better than the non-leader. Better is only, it will always and only be measured in terms of realization of your potential. That's the only valid measure of, of who and what we are. And Moshe Rabbeinu, he personifies that because, not because he was great because of the gifts with which he was endowed, 
Moshe Rabbeinu is, is, is symbolic of that, personifies that because he actualized his potential. He put in the time and the effort and actualized all of the potential which was inside of him. And for that, he gets all of the credit. He gets the credit of, of, of achieving all of that and not relying on his God-given gifts, but actually working to, uh, to develop all of them. Okay. Now, um, so Moshe Rabbeinu, so, sorry, HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows that swinging it back around to Moshe Rabbeinu specifically over here in the context of this, uh, this principle. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows that the Jewish people uh, need a leader who's going to be able to accomplish all of these great things, who's going to be able to accomplish the task, as we said, of taking Klai Yisrael Ad Mitzrayim, who's going to be able to achieve the highest levels of prophecy necessary in order to bring the Torah down from the mountain, from Har Sinai, all the way down to, uh, to Klai Yisrael who are here on, uh, on earth. And therefore, um, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu is the one who's going to go ahead and do that. And in this way, this principle, which uh, uh, serves as a bridge between the previous principle and the next principle. So as we said, the previous principle, the sixth principle is the existence of prophecy. The eighth principle has to do with the divinity of Torah. And the bridge between prophecy in general and the divinity of Torah is Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy. So he is a prophet connecting with the sixth, uh, the sixth uh, principle, but he's also the one who brought down as a prophet, brings down Torah from Harsinai to earth, to Aretz. And in that way, that's what lets us know because of the greatness in terms of the quality of his prophecy, that's what lets us know, gives us the confidence and the certainty that the Torah we have today is the uh, unadulterated Torah, which Moshe Rabbeinu brought down from Har Sinai, because we have such great confidence in his, uh, in his, in his prophecy. And therefore, so this is, uh, as I said, so this, this seventh principle is a continuation of the sixth principle, a further elaboration on uh, the existence of prophecy and the different levels of quality of prophecy. And it also serves as an introduction to the next principle about the divinity of Torah. Okay. So now let's get to what exactly are the traits by which Moshe Rabbeinu's nevuah was qualitatively better than any Navi preceding him or following him. So the Rambam goes ahead and he enumerates four different characteristics, four different uh, uh, aspects of Moshe Rabbeinu's uh, prophecy, which, which separated him from everybody else. And the first one is, the fact that uh, that all other prophets, when they uh, will discuss the, the difficulty with this, but all other prophets, when they communicated with Hashem, it was via some sort of intermediary. There was some, um, uh, I, don't, I don't know if antenna is the correct word, but there was a router. There was a router in between uh, the prophet and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, whereas, Moshe Rabbeinu did not require an, any intermediary whatsoever. Moshe Rabbeinu was able to have direct communication, a direct wire. He had the, the bat phone <laughs> uh, uh, directly to, or the, uh, the, the president's phone directly to the uh, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Like the, uh, like the Torah tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu spoke to HaKadosh Baruch Hu face to face, panim al panim. So that's a unique thing about Moshe Rabbeinu's nevuah, which we don't find by anybody else. Yes, Alex. Can you, can you give us an example? Take like one of the other prophets and, and 
because to me, it says they heard it in, does that mean like they heard it in a dream or they, they. So it's, it's not only a dream, that's going to be one of the other traits, but it came, it's, it's like coming, coming through a, a, a router. It's, it's going through, uh, you know, uh, it, it, there's a stopover somewhere else. Uh, somebody takes the communication from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, brings it to Moshe, like a courier. So is there, is that, is there a textual thing we see when we, when we look at the other Nevi'im? That might um, that indicates that. Um, I'm, so you know, I'm I'll read you the English translation of what the Rambam writes about the, about this. So he says this of all of them, this is the shortest one, and he doesn't bring any proof texts to it. Essentially, he says first, all prophets communicated with God, be he blessed, only through an intermediary, while Moshe communicated directly without any intermediary, as it is written, pet el adaberbo, mouth to mouth will I speak to him. So since by Moshe Rabbeinu it says mouth to mouth, so we, we extrapolate from there that all other Nevi'im did not have that direct line of communication. The Torah doesn't tell us that, and the Nevi'im don't tell us that. But what's bothering you, I imagine, is the fact that it certainly sounds like Hashem spoke to Avram Avinu, Hashem spoke to Yoshua, Hashem spoke to Shmuel. It sounds like it's direct communication which is taking place. There's no hint to this, the existence of intermediaries. So you're right. It's, it's, it, it, it's, it's a difficulty, and uh, by the other ones where he goes at and he talks about the other traits, he has lo- longer paragraphs with more psukim to prove his point. So this one, not so much. Um, now, this idea, however, uh, so this should uh, be uh, troubling you, this idea that all of the other Nevi'im spoke to God via an intermediary. Because if you remember, now I'm taking you back more than a month, but in the fifth principle, where we talked about the principle of prayer, so we emphasize incredibly strongly the idea that we don't have an intermediary between us and God. We dive into God directly, we communicate with God directly, and we are opposed in any way, shape, or form, even giving the hint of the notion that maybe we don't speak to God that directly, and we have to communicate via a, uh, a, a malach or something, to such a degree that we question the very, uh, uh, the very um, uh, acceptability of saying the paragraph Baruchuni L'Shalom in Shalom Aleichem, which sounded like we were asking the Malachim to go ahead and give us a blessing when blessings don't come from Malachim, they come from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So here, the Rambam is seemingly violating his own principle. He tells me in the fifth principle that we, direct, we, we communicate, we dive directly to God without the need for any intermediary whatsoever. And now in the seventh principle, we come along and we say that, well, the truth is, is that all the Nevi'im spoke to God via an inter- intermediary. So if all of the Nevi'im spoke to God via intermediary, so where does that put us? Nevi'im are head and shoulders above anything which we can hope to accomplish or or, or dream about accomplishing. And if they communicated via an intermediary, so what is that going to be for the rest of us? Maybe we should be saying Baruchuni L'Sholom. We should be looking to the angels in order to get get assistance. But maybe, but but some of that is directional. In other words... Meaning that Hashem is talking to the Nevi'im. Hashem is is telling the giving the Nevi'im direction, information, whatever. We are going. We're asking. We're praising. We're asking. We're whatever. We're praying to God for Hashem to do something for us. 
we're going it's going up as opposed to coming down okay that, that would be part of the answer excellent very good that's going to be a a, a, a good part of the answer so uh, now this question, however, is something which is uh, for most of us here, or perhaps even all of us here, uh, that we don't have Hasidic uh, um, um, orientation in terms of our, our, our approach to HaKadosh Baruch Hu currently. So we don't really have the concept of a Rebbe who's going to be the intermediary between us and God. But we, if we were Hasidim, so then they would say, well, what's the problem? <laughs> we, we all have an intermediary because we all have a Rebbe. And the Rebbe is the one who is uh, sort of the intermediary between all of his Hasidim and HaGadosh Baruch Hu. So they, for years, for decades and in, uh, in, uh, in centuries, so Hasidim have already been struggling with this idea of how the Rambam on the one hand says that there's, you can't, that there's no intermediary between us and God. That is the fifth principle. And then we come along and we introduce the concept of a Rebbe. And you know, the Rebbe is the one who's going to somehow be that, uh, that intermediary. So the mashal which they give is they note that there are two different types of mediators which exist. One type of mediator is, has the job of bringing the parties closer together. The parties are in a circumstance where they cannot communicate with one another. And the mediator's job is to speak to both of them, ultimately to bring them together. And then you can have a mediator whose job is to keep them apart, to not let them communicate with one another and to remain that person in between so that these two parts actually do not communicate with, 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 with one another. So when, we, when the Rambam talks about his opposition to an intermediary, what he's really talking about is the intermediary or the mediator whose job it is, is to keep the, the two parties apart. So for us to think that we could never dire, uh, communicate directly with God and that God doesn't communicate with us ever directly and that we always have to go through an intermediary because we cannot get to the man, with a capital M, so that the Rambam is opposed to. That he says is unconscionable that we should have such a thing exist because everybody can communicate directly with God and to think that there's an intermediary who's going, a bouncer or there's going to be the secretary who's going to go ahead and decide whose emails get through and whose letters get through and whose don't get through. And they're always going to be the buffer because you can never actually speak to that person. That the fifth principle says absolutely not, that cannot be. But there are times when an intermediary is going to be able to facilitate bringing the parties closer together so that they should be able to communicate. So in terms of prophecy, so that's what's happening. So similar to what Ellen was saying, that when God wants to go ahead and send a message down, so he's going to use that, that intermediary, a malach, whatever the intermediary is going to be, but the role the intermediary is going to be is to bring them closer together rather than to keep them apart. So as close as the intermediary could get them, so that's as far as he's going. That's as far as he's going to be able to do. But that's going to be his job. Moshe Rabbeinu was so close to Hashem, he didn't need that intermediary anymore because he was able to see and communicate panim al panim or pel face to face or mouth to mouth. So he was able to accomplish that without the need of an interpreter or without the need of a, of an intermediary or a, a mediator. But the other neviim who were not as accomplished as Moshe Rabbeinu, so they continued to have the need for somebody in there to facilitate the communication, because, but it was always to facilitate better communication rather than to make sure to keep the two parties apart. 
So that's going to be the difference between the intermediary, uh, which is opposed in the fifth principle, and the intermediary, which appears now in the seventh principle in terms of Nivua. Al, did you find something? Are you looking for something? Are you good? You're, you're muted, Al. Here we go. Yeah, um, I found that it's off the subject, maybe another time. Uh, uh, Moshe talked to Hashem ponim el ponim. However, this Shabbos we read, lo suchal says ponoi ki lo yirani uh, and, and other disclaimers in the same pa passage with uh, the meeting on the mountain. Uh, that that uh, Moshe asked to see Hashem, and Hashem said, "No, it's impossible." And then right. later we learned that they spoke fa face to face. Right. So the fa face to face, I think we, we will understand as not that Moshe Rabbeinu saw the face of Hakadosh Baruch Hu, but a face to face is the the term which we we would use for direct communication. That seems to be the way the Rambam is understanding that. Where we're saying it's direct communication rather than communication via some sort of intermediary. Um, uh, um, you know, I, 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 pl I play an intermediary role, uh, one of the many hats which I wear, when I go ahead and I take the Choshemishba emails which come in, I go ahead and I convey them to the, uh, to the Tamir Chachamim who answer them but they answer them in Lashon Kodesh, they answer them in you know, uh, Talmudic types of terminology and writings. And my job is to be the intermediary to go ahead and translate. So I translate you know, what could be a whole shtickle Torah that, they, that the Dayan wrote, and I go ahead and I distill it into you know, as few words and as few sentences as I could possibly make out of it in order to be able to provide them with, uh, with, with an answer. So in that regard, in, in, there are many instances where I actually play the role of that buffer to keep them away. Sometimes the, the, the better Dayanim, they just want to know what the question is. They want to answer the question. They don't want to hear the whole story that's related to it. They're not interested in that. I have to hear the whole story in order to be able to give them the information that they need to be able to answer the Shaila, but they specifically don't want that. The reason why they set up this system is so that they don't have to spend all the time listening to the story. That's Shaffel's responsibility, not the other uh, Dayanam's uh, responsibility. So uh, I play that role as an intermediary specifically to keep them apart. So that's a role which, uh, which, which I play. But at other times, uh, uh, you know, as we said, the mediator is going to play the role of trying two people who aren't talking to one another, who need to talk to one another. Two people are trying to negotiate something and the, the negotiation just isn't going well. Then you need a mediator who's going to be able to speak to both of them, translate and hopefully bring them closer together so that we can have uh, you know, better communication uh, you know, moving, uh, moving forward. So that's these two, uh, these two roles, which, uh, you know, two different types of mediators, one which Judaism fundamentally opposes, and the other which is an essential part of it because it actually ends up facilitating the, uh, the, uh, the communication. Okay, so we're going to hold it over here. So we'll pick it up next week in Ritz Hashem. Uh, same time. Uh, do we switch the clocks this week? Yes. Okay, so we're going to have to be in touch as far as, I didn't look that far ahead in terms of the right. timing of the classes and stuff as we move forward after the change of clock, how we're going to do that. Right. So also remember, everybody remember tomorrow night is the uh, pre-Pesach shir and the halacha shir on Thursday night. Thursday night. Mir Sasha. All right, everybody. Thank you, Rabbi. St stay healthy, stay safe.
Thank All you. All the best. Oh, yeah. Yeah, bye. Be well. Take care.